You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary South. We exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission by seeing the lost redeemed, the redeemed matured, and the matured multiplied for the glory of Jesus Christ. Connect with us online at redemptioncalgarysouth.com. Well, good morning. Our little ones are excused to go off to Redemption Kids and go learn about Jesus and the gospel and how that applies as well to their life as well. Good to see all the kids heading up there. My name is Quentin. I'm the pastor here at Redemption Calgary South. Excited to worship. It's so awesome to lift up the Lord's name. He is forever a holy God, and and we readily acknowledge that here. And and our praise and our worship of him and for his glory demands uh, our praise, and uh, we ascribe all the glory to him on this Lord's Day. If you have a Bible with you, and I pray that you do, uh, would you turn in, in the Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 6 as we continue uh, to be walking through uh, 1 Timothy together. We're, we're pursuing uh, the Lord through this book as a collective pursuit as the church of God, uh, seeking his master plan as we want to be a healthy uh, spiritual body of Christ here at uh, Redemption. So as we begin and as you turn to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, we're going to be looking at verses 2 to 5. But when you think about the body of Christ, when you think about your physical body, the health of your body can be severely compromised when it comes in contact with dangerous foreign bacteria or viruses or parasites and poisons from the outside world. You know that the one thing that we have learned, we've learned many things through this season, but one thing we have learned through through this COVID season is that uh, the washing of hands and the disinfection and, and physical isolation has helped to some extent to reduce the spread of viruses and sickness, right? Like beyond reducing COVID-19 transmission, our, our health authorities are, are telling us that influenza and seasonal sickness have dramatically dropped over the past year. Just think about the last time that you were sick compared to maybe a year ago or two years ago, our family, we've experienced over, it's been over a year since any of us have really been sick of of anything, maybe sick of the pandemic, right? Yeah, for sure. But as we're thinking about that, we're thinking about the body of Christ, we're thinking about our health and how we protect ourselves from disease. As, As the government has shown us recently that the health numbers show that last winter, Last flu season, not this flu season, but last flu season, there was over 8,400 cases of lab-confirmed influenza and 39 influenza-confirmed deaths. That was last year. But as of March 11th and this flu season so far, when you go to the, the, the Alberta Health website, you see that there are zero confirmed flu cases and zero confirmed influenza deaths. Now, when you think about all of that, and there are many different theories out there, and that's really not the point of bringing all of this up, the point I'm I'm making is is quite clear, is that working to keep dangerous influences from entering your body is effective to your overall health and well-being. And as the church, again, as the spiritual body of Christ, this principle also rings true, that working to protect our church body from outside dangers and 
influences is essential to the protection of the spiritual health of the church. Friends, the truth is, is that the spiritual health of the church is always in danger from outside influences. Throughout history and even as evidenced in this first century church in Ephesus that we're studying in 1 Timothy, is that outside influences can do a lot of damage. Dangers from the outside world can can get into the church and, and severely compromise the health of the church. And so as Timothy, as we know this, the context of this book, as, as Timothy was called to deal with the false teachers and to restore the church back to b- biblical health, as Paul is going to return again here to the topic of false teachers, he's going to give us some insight into the character of these false teachers. He's going to give us some insight into the nature of false teaching as Timothy's church was to be even more careful now with outside influence, they needed to know what to be watching for. Friends, as the outside dangers of false teaching and false teachers is still very alive and present today, we as a church need to be watching out as well. We need to be careful. So we ask ourselves, what kind of characteristics do we need to be aware of as others seek to influence the church and influence our lives? What traits out there ought to ring a bell of concern when we listen to this so-called preacher or that Christian influencer? And again, friends, as we've been looking through the book of 1 Timothy, we see that it all comes down to character, right? As, As influence is everywhere and the church is vulnerable, today we're going to get the inside track on the character of false teachers. Character traits to be watching out for. So as we go to the text in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 2 to 5, we're going to see that here this morning. But let's pray first. Let's ask the Lord's blessing and ask the Spirit to be helping us to see what he wants from the text. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Father, we thank you for gathering us. We thank you for the privilege of, of, of seeing each other this morning, the, the body of Christ coming together, the body of Christ coming together to worship your holy name. And Lord, as we resound in praise, as, as we are singing gospel songs to one another, and as we are uh, praising you in song and through the word, we pray that even by your word here this morning, that you would continue to do your work on us, both individually and collectively as your church. We trust you, Jesus, that you said that you would build your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But we also know that inside of that promise, inside of the life of the church, there are dangers for us to be aware of. And so as this book, from Paul to Timothy to the church in Ephesus, as it has been constantly proclaiming and highlighting the danger of false teachers, we pray that as we return again to this subject here this morning, that you would equip us, that you would prepare us for the days ahead, and that our eyes would be open to your word, to your glory, but also to what is dangerous outside there, and help us to follow you. Help us to obey by the strength of your spirit, according to your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. 1 Timothy 6, 2-5. Teach and urge these things. 
If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. As there are many voices out there, as there there are many influencers out there that are vying for our attention today, when we look back to this church in Ephesus, back in these ancient times, voices and influencers were a massive part of the culture back then. During this Roman Greco era, there was a group, and, and, and it was, a, it was a, a well-known thing, there was a group of, of traveling men, traveling wise men called the Sophists. And their sole career and business was to go around selling their philosophies, arguing philosophy. They were often traveling men who went from town to town, and they were, they were making a living off and, and arguing philosophical ideas, concepts about law, society. And as the Greek, Greek culture had a long history of, of loving public debate and, and rhetoric, the people of Ephesus would have been eating this stuff up like the rest of the culture of the Roman Empire. Now, if you were a skilled sophist at this time, you could make a lot of money. You could gain a lot of notoriety. You could become famous, and you could draw crowds of thousands of people. If, if the sophists were alive today, they, uh, they would have had thousands of likes and thousands of followers on social media. In fact, back then, uh, there was a sophist, a famous sophist by the name of Adrian, who when he would come to town, he was so popular that he would, he would attract thousands. It's, it was said of him that even the Senate and the circus emptied and the whole population flocked to the Athenium just to hear him. These guys were like rock stars. Now as their, their notoriety grew and as the, this practice was so lucrative, there was some glaring faults that these sophists had. Uh, the first was that that they would offer to argue or speak about anything. You know, as people would, would pay them to come and speak and, and to give an oratory, the topics that they were to speak or to argue were often chosen by the crowd and, and mostly chosen by those with the money. And so whenever somebody would flash some money and then they would choose a topic for them, the sophist would, would try as hard as he, he could to, to be the authority on any given subject which means that that many of them would often just make it up as they went, even if they knew nothing about the subject at all. Another issue with these sophists is that this practice was so competitive that it led to quarreling and it led to to fighting. An ancient philosopher, Dio Chrysostom, said, "Um, you might hear many poor wretches of sophists shouting and abusing each other and their disciples, as they call them, squabbling and and many writers of books reading their stupid compositions and many poets singing their poems and many jugglers 
exhibiting their marvels, and many, many soothsayers giving the meaning of prodigies, and a thousand rhetoricians twisting lawsuits, and no small number of traders driving their several trades. What we see here with the sophists is that it was not only just a love of senseless, lofty rhetoric, but also a, a, a love and a, and, a, and a claim for quarreling and, and jealousy. And this would lead to dissension within the community. As the sophists would battle in the theaters and in the streets, it, it became all about winning rather than wisdom. And the sophists became fixated upon their fame and their acclaim. It also is said of them that for the murmur of the crowd, they, they were like men walking in the dark. They move always in the direction of clapping and shouting. And so as we see kind of this background, this historical context here, we see that there was a church in Ephesus growing up with this historical, cultural background. And inevitably, as it goes, the church was being influenced by the culture. And so as Paul gives Timothy and the church insight as to what to be watching out for, as we turn to the text and just thinking about that influence, that influence was also coming into the church. These, these traveling wise talkers, these sophists, the same approach was sneaking its way into the church. And so as we turn to the text and as we're concerned about the false teachers and the character of false teachers, Paul's text here gives us some insight. And the first concern that we need to be watching out for, the first character trait, is that these false teachers have a contrary understanding. Right? As Paul closes out verse, verse 2 by commanding Timothy to teach and urge these things, again, as we've said before, these things he's referring to is, is everything that Paul has taught up to in this point. And everything he, he's taught up, up to this point uh, includes the sound doctrine that he's trying to instill in the Ephesian church. And so Timothy's called to teach and to urge these things. He's called to teach and urge the right doctrine. Teach and urge these things. Verse 3, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. And so the first and most significant characteristic you need to measure a false teacher by is not what he looks like, not what he wears, not what he drives. No, the greatest insight into the fallenness and the falseness of his character starts out by discerning the error that comes out of his mouth. It's about examining his faulty thinking. It's about listening carefully for a contrary understanding of right theology. So when it comes to false teachers, as it's often easy to, to pick kind of the, the low-hanging fruit of silliness and such, the source of the error is best refuted with the root of his teaching. And so we ask the question, what does he believe? What is he espousing? And how does what he teach line up with the truth? Friends, when you look out on evangelicalism today, especially as you turn on the TV or you tune in on YouTube, as the world still loves smooth-tongued, eloquent speakers, as the world loves new cutting-edge concepts, so too you will find many so-called Christians in many so-called churches 
eating up rhetoric, eating up teaching that is blatantly contrary to a right understanding of the Scriptures. As Timothy needed to know what to look out for, so you and I, we too as a church, we need to know what to look out for today. And it comes down to examining what is being understood and what is being taught. And so Paul is giving some insight here. How do we measure what's false and what isn't? How do we, what do we measure it against? And so Paul says, as he starts out here, he gives a bit of a threefold matrix or a threefold measuring rod for reference here, which it would basically be this. Number one, first, is, is the teaching different? He says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine, different than what? Different than the right doctrine. Different than the orthodox understanding, right? If somebody teaches different than that, there should be a red flag going up. Be careful when somebody says, I've got a new insight into the scriptures. Take notice when you hear that kind of rhetoric. Take notice when somebody says they've got a new angle on something. Right? When something is, is new in comparison to what the church has understood for centuries, these should be red flags going up. Number two, is the, is the teaching in disagreement? Paul says here, if, if anyone does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's an unhealthy approach. Uh, the, the word here for sound words uh, is the Greek word hygieno, meaning hygienic. That's where we get the word hygienic from, which means healthy, right? Is this new teaching actually healthy teaching? Does this teaching line up with the gospel, the healthy gospel of Jesus Christ? And if it doesn't, that should raise up red flags. And then thirdly, does this teaching go against godliness? Teaching that accords with godliness, Paul says. So does this new teaching and, and opposite teaching also go against the purity and the holiness that the Bible clearly commands and instructs? Again, as we're, as we're measuring kind of those three things, red flags should be popping up based on, on what he thinks and, and what the message is coming out of his mouth. Right? Sirens should be going off in your head when you see these opposing things. That as far as you can see, the falseness of this teacher is clearly seen by what he believes, by what he understands, and by what he teaches. Friends, when it comes to every cult and every false gospel that has spun off of true Christian orthodoxy, the first evidence that something is wrong is that the teaching does not pass the smell test. You know what I mean by smell test? Just the other day, we as a family, we, we had a, a bag of broccoli in the fridge, but it was hidden in the very back of the fridge, and it was way beyond the expiry date. And although you took it out and it looked green, and it even looked plump, it looked like broccoli the moment that we took the knife to the bag. It was an absolute stink explosion. It immediately filled the entire house. So much so that I, I swear I could see it in the air, right? It was terrible. I, I was gagging. If you know me, it doesn't take much for me to gag. But at the, at the moment that we knew that it was rotten, we couldn't get it out to the garbage bin fast enough. 
We couldn't get rid of the stink fast enough. We had all the windows open. It was horrible. So although it looked like broccoli from a distance, it didn't pass the smell test. Upon examination, it was diseased and it was rotten. Friends, if you look at every pseudo-Christian cult that has ever started, although they can usually start somewhat unsuspecting, is what you find that although it may look okay on the outside, the way that you truly put it through the smell test is to open it up and to examine it, to listen to what they're teaching, discern the understanding, and then measure it against what's right. John MacArthur says the, the teaching of a false prophet cannot withstand scrutiny under the divine light of Scripture. You have to compare it to God's holy word. So if a teacher comes and he says to you, I've got secret insight, bang, goes up that flag, right? It goes against what is, is well known and understood of, of sound theology. So you've got to look closer at it. You've got to scrutinize it against the true gospel. You've got to check if it's twisting or, or if it's altering or teaching another gospel. Galatians 1.9 says, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Right? Take it to the trash. Get rid of it. If it's going against the purity and the holiness of God's word, if it's producing stinking, rotten fruit instead of the sweet purity of godliness, friends, we need to reject it. We need to protect ourselves from it. We need to keep it far from us. Matthew 7, 15 to 17, Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. We don't want bad fruit. We want a healthy church. We want healthy fruit. So as, as contrary understanding and, and false teaching is the first and primary way to identify a false teacher, as their false fruit produces this ungodly fruit, that ungodly fruit works its way out into to various unsavory character traits. And one of the most common characteristics of a false teacher, according to Paul here, is that they're marked by a conceited disposition. Verse 3, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. So the Greek word for conceit here comes from the root word for smoke, meaning that the, the, this false teacher is so full of himself that he is puffed up with smoke. Kind of like our common saying today, you know, that guy is blowing smoke or, or, or that person is full of hot air. Same understanding. False teachers in their most common character are not ruled by a fear of the Lord, but rather they are ruled by a love of their own reflection. Friends, narcissism has a very comfortable place in the pulpit of false teachers. And narcissism is at the very root, revealing a severe lack of, of self-awareness. 
What we're seeing here in this text is that there is a severe lack of self-awareness which is married to an inflated view of oneself. So to under, understand what's going on here, we see that uh, this, this lack of, of self-awareness leads towards arrogance. It leads towards conceit. J.C. Ryle says, pride comes from not knowing yourself and the world. Amy Carmichael also said as well, those who think too much of themselves don't think enough. Friends, arrogance and conceit are a direct result of lacking true spiritual knowledge. That's why false teachers know nothing of true humility and are commonly full of themselves rather than being full of the Spirit. And so as you think about the culture, as the sophists at that time were craving the spotlight and the applause of men in the secular culture, so these false teachers within the church were seeking the same thing. Like the sophists, they were, they're, they're, at this time, there was so-called like wandering prophets going around. And they would go from church to church. And they would stand and they would teach doctrines. But ultimately, what was revealed is that the doctrines that they were teaching were not exalting Christ, but they were exalting themselves. And this played a big factor in the, the, the church in Ephesus going sideways. And so when you think about Timothy, as he was called by Paul to deal with the false teachers and to restore the church... He needed to know what to look for. And conceited character was a prime indicator of such falseness. Friends, as a, a true teacher, as we've already studied in this book, as a true teacher and a true overseer is qualified through the Scripture, we've seen that in chapter 3. We know that the qualifications is, is, one of them is that he's not puffed up with conceit. We also see in Titus chapter 1, verse 7, that a, a true teacher, a true overseer, must not be arrogant. To be, to be conceited is to be the exact opposite of a true overseer. And I've seen way too many preachers over the years who, who even seem to preach a sound theology, but who over time start to reveal their true character, their true pride. Even within our conservative evangelical circles over the past 10 years, I've seen too many men that I have even followed or listened to online who over time have disqualified themselves from ministry. And the early indicator of this fallenness was pride. It was arrogant. It was conceit. These things are, are bubbling to the surface. They would say things like, we've baptized this many people this year. We have this many campuses. We're planting this many churches. I've got this many followers online, right? These many people have been viewing my videos, all revealing a greater symptom of a deeper problem. Friends, the, the pulpit has no place for pride and conceit. So often like the, the sophists, these men in Ephesus they would come and they would be incredibly gifted with oratory skills. They were often excellent communicators. They, they probably had magnetic personalities and they knew how to draw a crowd. And yes, even some would have initially come across as an orthodox teacher, but over time, and especially as they would gain notoriety, their true character would be revealed. 
that they weren't really in this thing for the Lord, but they were in this thing for themselves. Proverbs 26, 12. Do you see a man who was wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. I remember a pretty famous pastor who, who used to pay a photographer to follow him around and, and take pictures of himself as he would go to the hospital and visit the sick and would take pictures of himself when he would be praying. And then he would post it on social media. It's very involved in self. Friends, we need to be careful who we give our attention to. We need to use extreme discernment with who we give our ear to. And we need to be watching for that early indicator of conceit. Now, where there's conceitedness, there's often also contentiousness. The next character trait that Paul reveals for us here, for us to be watching for, is a contentious attitude. So back to verse 4 into, into verse 5. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. So the terminology being used here, this unhealthy craving here, strongly speaks of, of a sickness of mind. A sickness of mind working itself out through a morbid infatuation with controversy. That the character of a false teacher tends to find himself at the center of controversy. He's always at the center of controversy rather than being at the center of peace. And you know what? He loves it. He likes the attention. He likes to be contrary as opposed to holding fast to the sound, healthy words of Christ from verse 3. This guy sickly seeks to, to quarrel about words, it says. So as the sophists at that time would, would battle over language and interpretation in the public square, so the false teacher loved to quarrel within the church. He loved to have word battles. He loved to have word wars. Now, friends, to be sure, there is a healthy place where Christians debate the word of God and debate theology, where you are like a Berean and you study and you want to argue a point. There is plenty of room for that in a respectful, peaceful, humble way. But when somebody seeks to always find themselves in battles over words regularly, it should be concerning. If they're regularly involving themselves in battles over theology and they enjoy the battle, we got to be concerned. Friends, some people out there, especially on social media today, and especially in religious circles, are only out there for the fight. They love to quarrel about words. The arrival of Twitter and Facebook to the church at large has proved so much unfruitfulness, so much contention. And yes, some of it is good and right and necessary, but for the most part, what I witness is that these platforms are just a blank slate for unaccountable, unrestrained argument. Just think about how different a conversation would go 
if you were face to face with somebody than being online. And compare that to, to, you know, that sitting down and having a coffee and discussing something, challenging something, compared to uh, being alone and having 480 characters to, to, to challenge with. Friends, when somebody is constantly in the middle of theological battles, slicing and dicing words and phrases beyond all recognition, they're focusing too much on the debate and not enough on the Lord. They're, they're focusing on the white spaces between the ink, and, and they, they love to twist and to speculate what the Lord has clearly revealed. They love the battle. If they love the battle, and they're always at the center of the battle, this is not the man for the pulpit. These are not the ones that you give all your attention to, especially when their character is also conceited and their theology is contrary. One commentator J.S. Wales said about this infatuation with word wars, he says, instead of putting off our shoes from our feet because the place we're in, we stand as holy ground, we are taking nice photographs of the burning bush from suitable angles. We are chatting about theories of the atonement with, with our feet on the mantelpiece instead of kneeling down before the wounds of Christ. Martin Luther said, oh, and of course, Martin Luther is well known for being a man who is all about the theological battle, but he said this, he who merely studies the commandments of God is not greatly moved, but he who listens to God commanding, how can he fail to be terrified by majesty so Great Friends, the purpose of the Word of God is, is to so captivate you by His splendor, by His beauty, by His holiness, that it ought to break us in humility before Him. When it's all about ammunition for an argument rather than an instrument of transformation and worship, friends, we've got it all wrong. Be careful with the word wars. Be careful with your theological battles. And I'll also say this as an extension of application. Be careful with those even in our corner, in our camp, who are overly given to polemics, right? The discernment ministries out there. Sometimes our own are so unnecessary sowing seeds of discord, who, who lack grace and gentleness when they're arguing the finer points, who end up creating more and more layers of separation where God has instructed us to have charity, where God has instructed us to have love and unity. Even some of our closest friends in theology are creating degrees of distance where there shouldn't be degrees of distance. Yes, we need to be discerning. Yes, we need to be clear. And yes, we need to draw lines, but we, make, we need to make sure that those lines that we draw are in the right place. And if you're constantly finding yourself within the heat, within the center of the battle, it's a good indication that you're making much more of some things that God is not making much of. Areas where God would prescribe humility and charity and peace. We have to be careful. Now, as false teachers are waging wars over words, as they're tearing apart Scripture from all context and clarity and orthodoxy, we see that it has a devastating effect. Paul says it produces envy, right? Jealousy, 
It's producing dissension, right? The breaking of relationships. It's producing slander, right? That's tearing down somebody's character. It's producing evil suspicions, he says, right? Being suspicious about somebody's motivation. And then verse 5, it produces constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. As false teachers rub each other the wrong way, it produces friction. And what does friction do when it's left unattended? Friction produces fire. Fire that spreads and fire that destroys. Friends, the casualties of the the word war battles are numerous. The fallout can be nuclear in the church as the depraved in mind and deprived of truth battle within the pillars and the buttresses of the church. It has a devastating effect. And there's one person who absolutely loves that. Satan himself. He loves to see the body of Christ become infected from an external spiritual disease to the point that the body ultimately tears itself apart from within. And he loves it. As Timothy was to protect the flock here, he was to do everything he could to keep from joining Satan in his battle against the church. He was to be watching for religious influencers who had contentious attitudes. So contrary understanding, conceited disposition, contentious attitudes. Friends, if you remember our head, heart, hand analogy that we talk about often, how how fallen thinking creates fallen desires, which produces fallen fruit, what we see here being confirmed in these false teachers is that it also works in the false way, right? As, as, as a person misunderstands true doctrine, and as they choose contrary doctrine, you see that instead of a heart being softened and humbled, a heart becomes callous and conceited. And then as, as your heart is the center of, of your desires, instead of godly desires being put in place, the desires become ungodly. And out of that, those ungodly desires produce corrupt fruit instead of good, healthy fruit. Corrupt fruit that works its way out to infect others, to infect the body, to disease and destroy. And Satan is laughing all the way to the bank. This is what he wants. And the choice for us is whether or not we join him in the battle against the church. Friends, as the heart is deceitfully wicked, as Jeremiah says, the motivation behind all of this evil and corruption comes down to pride. When we look at the character of a false teacher, we see so evidently clear that a common motivation is self. The false teacher is readily revealed by a motivation of self, and his motivation is corrupt. As they are, as a false teacher is depraved of mind and deprived of the truth, verse 5 closely says here, or closes by saying, that they are imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Godliness is being used here by Paul in a sarcastic sense. 
that these false teachers are, are in this God thing, not for God, but for their own gain. And specifically in this context, they're in it to line their own pockets, just like the sophists in the culture. As the sophists live for the applause of men, and as they catered to those with money, as they were selfish and greedy, so these false teachers in the church are selfish and greedy. And we see them within the hands of Satan as he is driving these false teachers to deceive and corrupt what's right with what's wrong. Friends, true spiritual leadership must not be given or must not be a lover of money. We know that from 1 Timothy 3.3. They must not be greedy for dishonest gain, 1 Timothy 3.8. They must not be greedy for gain, Titus 1.7. Friends, as the love of money, as we're going to study next week, is the root of all kinds of evil, Greed is the knife upon which many false teachers fall. It's the ultimate working out of, of this love of self, this love of acclaim. And it, it comes out in the love of stuff. And I don't even need to highlight what's, what is so blatantly and, and rotten on display today with the health and wealth and prosperity movements. As preachers are twisting scripture and devouring widows' homes, all under the auspice of faith. They're in it for fattening their wallets. They're in it for the accumulation of stuff and temporary pleasures. They're in it for their own gain. And this is disgusting. And it is devastating. And it should make us angry. But in some ways, all of that is low-hanging fruit. Because this stuff also happens on a smaller scale as well as charlatans and hucksters and snake oil salesmen have influenced local churches and, and even have led churches astray. They have done it for themselves, for the lining of their own pockets, to satisfy their, their greed. Friends, is there anything more corrupt than someone selling a false gospel for the greed of the heart? Leading many to eternal hellfire for the sake of temporary delights. It happens all the time. As fallen thinking leads to fallen desires, the fallen desires motivate their fallen actions, and then they show up in your church. They show up on your TV. They show up on the internet. And they even show up in all of their giftedness, in all of their attraction. They show up with the power of Satan behind them, the one who wants to seek and kill and destroy the church. And he uses fallen false teachers, promising to provide for them all of their temporary pleasures for their greed. These kinds of men know nothing of God. They are sons and they are servants of Satan. They are bidding his work. They are selling themselves out for their temporary gain and for Satan's momentary glory. We need to watch out for these characters. We need not let them into the church. Like Timothy, we need to get them out. They will attempt to destroy what Christ has started. They will attempt to infect what Christ is building. And ultimately, how we discover and how we identify these false teachers is by character. Right? It comes down to character. 
If we have heard anything through the book of 1 Timothy, we have heard over and over again that it's about character. It's been a, a resounding sound throughout this book. God is about true character. And he identifies the false through false character, through contrary understanding, through conceited disposition, and through a contentious attitude and corrupt motivation. John MacArthur comments here, he says, unless those who claim to be God's spokesman give evidence that their deepest motives and life patterns are to honor, glory, and magnify God and to grow in humility, holiness, and obedience, we can be sure that God has not called or sent them. If they are oriented to money, prestige, recognition, popularity, power, sexual looseness, and selfishness, they do not belong to Jesus Christ. If they are proud, arrogant, resentful, egotistical, and self-indulgent, they clearly are false prophets. If we want to be a healthy church, we need to be careful. We need to be careful with who we let influence the church. If you want to be a healthy Christian, you've got to be careful who you let influence you as well. You've got to ask the question, do they, do they pass the spiritual smell test? Because when we let influence and influencers in who are not God's men, we can severely disease the body. And we can threaten the life of the body of Christ. We can threaten the vitality of the bride of Christ. God is serious about qualifying leaders, and he is serious about disqualifying false teachers as well. We need godly leaders, brothers and sisters. We need godly influencers in our lives. Are those who we let influence us contrary in understanding? Are they unsound in their teaching? Are they conceited in character? Or are they humble in heart, right? Are they contentious? Or are they gentle and peaceful? Are their motivations corrupt? Or, or are their motivations the pure and holy character and glory of God. Brothers and sisters, it comes down to this. Jesus loves his body. Jesus loves you, his church. His love for his church is unrelenting. Therefore, as you are his body, as you are his bride, his goal is to protect you, the church, and to purify his precious bride. He's, he's, he's concerned for his precious body. His goal is, is, is for his church, right? Even beyond saving his church, his goal is to continually grow you and, and transform you individually and collectively into his likeness. His goal for us is, is holy health for his bride. Therefore, he has given us these instructions. Instructions for the health of the church. For the bride that he purchased by his blood. And so as we move ahead as a church, as we seek to be healthy, we, we embrace this. And we keep our eyes open. Jesus is building his church here. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it, but we have instruction inside of that as to how we are to protect and to grow all for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for 
these sound words, these, this, this teaching of sound doctrine, which is reminding us that we need to hold fast to that. And as we get a whiff of anything that is contrary, as we get a smell of conceit, as we, as we may be revealed of some kind of contentious character of those who seek to influence us, Lord, would you help us to be discerning? Would you help us to follow you all the more, to keep our eyes open to the dangers that threaten to disease the body? And as we walk ahead in these days as a church, even just individually, how do we apply this? We also apply this to our personal lives. As we pursue uh, uh, spiritual leaders as well online, as, as much as that is a blessing, there's also a danger. So help us in that as well. And we pray that within our body that you would be producing good spiritual fruit, healthy fruit, healthy fruit that would be evidence of your gospel on display, that the blood of Christ has purchased a bride and that you are you're purifying your bride for your glory. And so as we embrace what you have given, by your spirit would you motivate us for the days ahead and apply this deeply into our lives, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. Follow us on social media to stay up to date on current events and information from Redemption Church, Calgary South. And don't forget, you are loved.